This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, hello and welcome. Uh, on the screen, uh, you'll see a message from UC President Napolitano on, on the recent events that have been happening. I don't want to co-opt the, the webinar topic today, but I, I didn't think it would be appropriate to, to move forward without at least addressing it. Um, this is a, a nice message uh, and can, I think, pretty accurately reflects the sentiments felt by, by many on at the UCSD campus. Uh, so I wanted to kind of start with that today. Um, but we'll move on then. And uh, hello, my name is Wendy Hunter Barker. I'm an assistant dean here at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. And we're very pleased to welcome you to the Global Impacts of COVID-19 webinar series. Today is the last webinar currently scheduled in this series. Uh, we may have one or two more for you throughout the summer, but this will be our last weekly webinar. It's been really great having you along with us and thank you so much for joining today. Since we're in June, uh, and next week our students will be finishing up their studies and approximately 170 will receive their degrees from GPS, I thought it might be a good time to just spend just a moment talking to you about where our alumni find themselves out and about in the world. As our student body is roughly 50% domestic, 50% international students, um, it's, it's a, a bit interesting to see that the majority of the alumni stay here in the U.S. and can be found both on the West and East Coasts. Uh, the next largest population is in Eastern Asia, mainly grouped in China, Korea, Japan. In terms of employment, we send a large number of students into the private sector. The mix of strong quantitative skills and policy training makes them perfect fits for international corporations like Samsung, and Qualcomm, Sony, as well as consulting firms like Deloitte and Accenture. In this breakdown, you can see that many go into environmental sustainability and energy, uh, as well as international development, finance, education. We're infinitely proud of our alumni and we support them with career services and opportunities for professional development throughout their entire career. Industrious as they are, they routinely want to learn more and I'm sure that there are many on the webinar here today. Welcome. So as an institution of higher education, all of us at GPS are reacting in real time to the impacts of COVID-19 on the education system here in the US. And I'm definitely thrilled to be able to hear the insights that our panelists are going to share with us today. And so I want to thank them all for, for coming and being here. So with this, I'm going to turn it over to Augustina, who will lead our discussion. Thank you, Wendy. And thanks, Wendy. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And um, welcome to this webinar. Today, we're going to be talking about the impact of COVID-19 on education systems around the world and we could not be more fortunate to have two of the leading education experts join us for this Emiliana Vegas and Justin Sandefur. Emiliana Vegas is co-director of the Center for Universal Education at Brookings in Washington DC and Justin Sandefur is co-director of the education program at the Center for Global Development also in DC. Uh, both of them have done so much to inform education policy in developing countries with Emiliana's work focusing mostly on Latin America and Justin's on Africa. I have been personally lucky enough to have them both as colleagues and mentors and I want to thank you both for joining us today at UCSD uh, for what I hope will be a very informative and thoughtful conversation about the very new challenges facing education systems. The way that we're going to structure the webinar today is the three of us are going to have a back and forth conversation until about 12.40. And then at that time, we're going to open up the floor for a Q&A with the audience. So please uh, keep track of all the questions you have for Justin and Emiliana. Um, so let's get started. Emiliana, Justin, I want to get us started with some basic facts about the education crisis that we are experiencing because all of us have been reading um, a lot about the number of new COVID cases appearing every day, the number of deaths, how these things are changing and particularly health related statistics. But COVID has important ramifications for other areas of our lives and particularly for education. So maybe Justin, can you get us started to tell us a bit about what's the scope of the education crisis 
crisis that COVID has triggered. Uh, basic things like how many countries have closed their schools, how many children are out of school, and how has this pandemic altered the way in which education is being provided around the world? Great. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Augustina um, and Wendy for having us here. Um, this, I hope, will be a great discussion. Um, so let me dive right into your question there, Augustina, um, by hopefully sharing my screen, if I can do that. Um, it's more fun to talk about maps if you can see them. Um, and is that working for everybody? Yep. Great. So one thing my colleagues um, here at the, at the center have been doing um, and, you know, parallel efforts by folks um, at UNESCO and elsewhere, keeping track of these school closures at the beginning of the COVID pandemic was a bit of a struggle, um, keeping up with the news, and it eventually became um, sort of easy in that schools are closing everywhere. Um, as you can look at the map, if you look at localized closures or countrywide closures, you know, you cover most of the globe at the, as we reach the peak of the pandemic. Um, and so, what we've kind of taken to doing, I think, is probably at this stage is shifted focus a little bit, you know, to the um, to the deliberations about when schools might want to reopen. Um, and so let me just talk for one minute about that. Um, the, the graph you see up there on the horizontal axis has days uh, since schools reopened, or in some cases until schools are supposed to reopen according to official announcements. And then on the vertical axis there, you have kind of the flow of new COVID cases, a seven day moving average. Um, I mean, one thing that's worth noting is that a lot of these, a lot of these countries closed, you know, after the pandemic had, had really taken off, but many developing countries in particular, particular in Sub-Saharan Africa, made these decisions to close extremely early in their epidemic. You know, there were multiple Sub-Saharan African countries who closed their entire national school system before a single COVID case uh, was confirmed. Um, so really quite aggressive moves on school closures in much of the developing world. Um, and now the deliberation is that when it's safe um, to come back and get these millions and millions of kids back into school, um, what we see is that most countries that have reopened have done so once they've passed the peak of the epidemic, passed the peak of new cases, and they're on that downward trajectory. But in terms of the flow of new cases, you see a wide range there from you know, Germany and France at the high end um, down to Vietnam and, and China at the low end before they made the decision to reopen. Those reopening decisions usually come with all kinds of safety protocols about social distancing, in some cases, test and trace um, protocols. We don't want to draw any real firm causal inferences yet, but so far, I think there's some cautious optimism about not seeing a big spike in those trends after the school reopenings. Um, we don't have time to go deep into this, but of course there's a whole debate about the extent to which children are a vector for transmission um, and the extent to which, you know, there is a, you know, one camp which would say school should be the first thing to reopen because children are lower risk. Um, we're not seeing huge spikes up. There are some exceptions. Chechia has seen some move upward. Madagascar has seen a break in the trend after schools reopened. And of course, there's been news headlines about South Korea having to reclose schools after an uptick. Um, but the last thing I'll show you then is the latest wave, you know, a lot of those countries reopened a couple of weeks ago. The most recent wave and the, and the coming wave of countries that are looking to reopen, you know, South, Korea, sorry, South Africa and the UK, or at least England, reopened at the beginning of the week with higher case levels, um, and South Africa really showing no sign of being past the peak of the epidemic. Um, so a little bit worrying. Um, and Pakistan and Indonesia planning to open in coming weeks, but also showing no signs of being past the peak of the epidemic. So I think the bottom line is, to your question, basically almost all kids worldwide um, have been out of school. And the prospects for getting them back in school, you know, we're, we're gradually getting there country by country. But, you know, there's a number of places where it really seems quite early to be talking about being past the peak and ready to, to reopen. Thank you, Justin. Emiliana, do you want to add anything to that? Um, whether you share Justin's cautious 
optimism or whether you want to discuss something about the ways in which the crisis has affected education? Um, sure. Um, I think what, what I have been working on is um, on, you know, once the decision to close schools was made, how did different groups of countries respond? And looking in particular at differences by level of income and by region of the world to try and see, you know, are there, you, you would imagine that high, higher income countries would have better responses or the ability to provide more online education um, than low-income countries, and the data show that. Um, but what has been striking is um, how big these differences are. And, you know, we know from research that ed tech or online learning is not a substitute or a very good substitute for in-person learning. So the concern I think Justin and everybody really shares is what will be the lasting impacts on today's cohorts of students long-term and particularly those who are in um, the least developed regions. Thank you. Um, so since you brought up this issue of online education and, and you said like what well, we know from the research that online education is no panacea and that in a lot of cases it actually doesn't do much to promote learning in normal circumstances. Um, so there, there's a concern, I think, among many of us who care about education that even in those cases where you have online education, kids are not going to be learning a lot. Um, but then there's a different concern which you bring up uh, in terms of the differences in accessibility to education depending on whether you even have access to the internet or, or to a computer. Um, we, in education, we often think of the importance of education in reducing what we call the income achievement gap, which is the, the, how much a kid who comes from a low-income family learns compared to how much a kid who comes from a high-income family learns. Ideally, education should help promote learning among all kids so that we don't have these big differences. And we know in the US, for example, there's a big difference, nonetheless, in how much kids from high versus low income families learn with high income kids typically being about three grades ahead of low income kids. We also know that in low income countries, there is a big difference in many countries, maybe in some Asian countries, there's, a, there's, a, there's less of a difference. But in, in most of the developing world, there is a big difference in achievement between low and high income. And so is this crisis going to exacerbate those? Is it going to make things, is it bad for everyone equally? Um, are there ways besides the access to technology? Are there policies that countries are doing right now to try to address COVID or that they kept in place that they inherited from pre-COVID that are exacerbating these inequities in the current context? What, what's going to happen to these learning inequities? I mean, I can start and I'm sure Justin can compliment if that's okay. Um, you know, I think that as, as Justin said, you know, at one point in March, there were over 1.5 billion children out of school worldwide. This has never happened before. And, you know, there have been closures due to certain crises in some countries at one time, but never, at, you know, in all countries pretty much at the same time. I do think that this will be a huge setback in terms of what kids were learning and even as you said among those who are have access to online tools and who have resources at home the impact will be probably less severe than you know among rural children in the poorest parts of the world that don't have access to internet that you know whose parents probably have to go out and work um, to provide for the family and who don't have an environment at home that will facilitate um, learning um, I do think even in developed countries, I mean, we see it here in the United States, we see it even in the metropolitan area of Washington, DC, huge differences across schools and school districts in the, um, in the sort of pre-COVID times and how much they engaged with technology and online education. And then, you know, the reality is that many of these um, decisions to close schools were taken overnight. 
um, even in developed countries. You know, in New York City, teachers were informed on Sunday that their students wouldn't be back on Monday. They literally had overnight, you know, and that the, the online program would start, you know, that same week, two days later. So two days, teachers had to prepare for something they had never done before. And that's in an advanced economy. Um, it, fortunately, I think, you know, developing countries have had crises before and have had problems accessing um, education or providing access to education. And so there has been a, a bigger tradition of uh, broadcast education, TV and radio uh, use in, in, in some of the developing world. And there was some way in which that ha is interesting, has been used in countries like Chile and Peru to provide um, curricular aligned um, education. Um, but again, I, it's not, it doesn't allow for the kind of interactions that students would otherwise have with each other and with uh, teachers and schools. Thank you. Justin, I know you have views about policies and the kinds of policies in place, what they're going to do for educational inequities. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let me actually, if you'll allow me, I'll show one graph, which I think comes from some of Emiliana's uh, former colleagues at the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, so just repeating their points, but, uh, and they in turn, I think, drew it from a meta-analysis in the United States. But, you know, what happens, I think most of this is sort of to be anticipated, but what happens when schools close? You know, as Emiliana said, there is this risk of exacerbating inequality. I've heard, you know, some journalists refer to this as sort of a stratifying event that, you know, it's a uni universal shock, but it's going to push people, you know, poor people down and, and while, while higher income people are able to preserve their advantages. So we don't luckily have a lot of global pandemics since we've had good test score data to go back to, but um, there is this huge literature, obviously, on what happens during summer school closures. Um, and I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that more affluent kids or kids from more affluent households do better over the summer than, than lower, you know, socioeconomic status kids. But what struck me in this, you know, this blog since COVID uh, from folks at the IADB pointing out for the U.S., I mean, it's not just that, you know, if you look at the orange bars are the high SES, the rich, richer kids, and the blue bars are the poorer kids. It's not just that richer kids are doing better over the summer than poorer kids. It's that richer kids are advancing in absolute terms on their learning gains over the summer and poorer kids in the lower grades are falling absolutely behind. So it's not, you know, that we're moving in the same direction, but failing to keep pace is that kids are moving in opposite directions um, when schools are closed. So I do think, you know, we always, one of the reasons we celebrate public education is as a great leveler is inter, in, you know, improving intergenerational mobility. And we've shut that off and people are going to be drifting, I fear, in, in absolutely the opposite directions here. Thank you. Um, Add something there. I think that I, I'm not even as, uh, as um, I say, optimistic as my colleagues were addressing about potential of learning gains during the school closures as maybe during the summers where there's no pandemic. Because um, I think when when there's not a pandemic, then wealthier families are able to still engage their kids and roll them in programs that are enriching, whether they're outdoors, summer camps, or where there's actually summer school, um, but activities where the kids do learn. I think, um, I think if, I don't think those gaps will grow as badly in, during the pandemic, although I do think the learning loss will be smaller among those of higher SES. That would be my prediction, although nobody knows. But it would it, it really calls for making sure that as soon as uh, schools or students go back to the next school year, at least in, in this country, but in other countries are in the same schedule, um, that, um, that, that children are really assessed because there's going to be a lot of work to be done to help those who fell furthest behind. And, and, and I, I, I would fathom that many will fall behind even in the best schools of every country because, as I said earlier, um, online education is really a poor substitute for um, in-person education most in most cases. And in, in this particular case, the, you know, the majority of schools were not really prepared. I think we will do probably a better job in the future, I hope, 
if we have to, um, you know, that schools can prepare better for uh, both, you know, enriching the in-person education with online tools, as well as um, uh, providing online opportunities when school, when students are off school. And, you know, if, if we don't get a vaccine uh, in the near future, it's likely that we may have to have other periods of school closures. Right. Um, we're talking a lot about the impact of COVID and school closures on learning. Uh, but I think one of these things that this crisis has brought up is how much schools do besides promoting learning, um, that they fulfill so many different roles, right? Um, and so there's these other things around child hunger when kids depend on school meals. There's uh, concerns about social emotional development because of kids being completely isolated socially, concerns about child abuse uh, and lack of physical safety for kids for whom school is their physical safe space and, and their safe haven. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering for you personally, uh, of all these different issues, whether it's child hunger or social emotional development or learning or physical safety, etc. Which of these is the most worrisome one? If we had to prioritize addressing one of these, which one would it be? Well, <laughs> okay. Well, actually, I can't help but think, particularly given the the, the, the times we're living here in, in the United States, that in a very important role that particularly public schools, but also private schools can play is bringing together people of diverse backgrounds and, and races and cultures in a, in a common space where they can interact and learn from each other and build a more just and peaceful uh, community. So I think that's something that to me right now, maybe because of the times we're leaving is, is perhaps the most important role that schools can play. And that is very difficult to do online. Justin? Um, yeah, that's a really tough choice. I mean, I think I am, I've always been, you know, a big fan of school feeding programs. Um, I think based on working in Liberia and seeing the difficulty that Liberian schools have um, and getting kids to turn up and getting kids to stay engaged and getting kids to stay a full school day in a hot school with nothing to eat, um, that just that kind of primary need of needing basic subsistence or sustenance rather um, kind of trumps all of the other things we'd want to do for their education and learning. And I am fearful of what's happening at that level of basic nutrition um, to a lot of kids who rely on, on school feeding programs when schools are open. Um, there are, you know, there are school districts and systems that are working hard to make school meals available um, when, while schools are shut, you know, Kerala state in India has gotten a lot of news, uh, in that regard. Um, but, you know, beyond the, the obvious tragic loss of life from COVID directly, we're entering, you know, probably an unprecedented economic global crisis. And so the need for social protection of all forms is going to be really acute in the coming months and years, even. Um, and I think the, you know, in a lot of low income countries, you know, we're, we're all, you know, wearing other hats. We're all, you know, I think in the kind of the wonky DC development community, you know, fans of cash transfers and, and those more efficient forms of, uh, social protection. Um, but those systems aren't always available in rural areas and low income countries and things like in-kind food make a big difference. Um, so I, I see a big role for for schools increasingly in that just social protection function um, and look forward to schools being able to get back into that role. And hopefully, I hope that this crisis provides a nudge for school systems. You know, often ministries of education and education experts kind of say, well, that's not really an education function. That's sort of a distraction from our core um, role. But I kind of hope that mentality changes a bit in the midst of, of this crisis. Thank you. Um, 
I guess it was an unfair question to start with um, because I, I, I think your answer is going to depend on the context and, for instance, the degree to which kids depend on school meals is going to affect how important that function is and, and whether you prioritize it or not. So I, I was trying to push you to choose something because in some ways I'm aware that we can't do everything. Uh, and, and this crisis more than ever makes it clear that resources are limited. And, and I want to talk a little bit about money um, because I think there's, among those of us who work in education, we're going to want uh, money to go towards schools so that they can promote the kind of uh, inclusive societies that Emiliana was talking about and the kind of school feeding programs that <clears throat> Justin has in mind and the kinds of learning opportunities that all kids should have the right to access uh, regardless of their family uh, socioeconomic status or whether they have access to the internet at home and so on. Uh, there's so much that we would want schools to be able to do and at the same time we're in a situation where it seems like the priority is health and um, social safety nets. And as someone who works on education, I'm left thinking, is it not just realistic, is it even desirable to want governments to channel more resources toward education or even to maintain the levels of education spending that they have been doing? That is, is it socially responsible to be pushing for that when the situation does not seem to be, it seems to me that maybe someone might push back at us and say, look, first you have to take care of basic needs. Survival is one of them. Uh, and survival entails not dying from COVID and, uh, and also having enough food. Education is something that comes later once your very basic needs are met. So, so how would you respond to that? And, and and what should governments do in terms of how they use their resources, which are limited? I'll, I'll start and I, I think it's a very, um, I would say um, to me, a very um, difficult conversation because I think that in many, historically, that has been the argument to underinvest in education, that there are more urgent priorities, more short-term needs, and that education, the benefits of investing in education are seen much later. Yet we know from, you know, past research um, on crises and pandemics that the impact of the loss of learning through like these periods where whether, whether it's because of school closures or, or because of dropping out of school to help out in the family and to earn an income, um, they have lasting impacts in lifetime earnings for the individuals affected and for their countries in terms of how productive they are in, in, later on. And so I think it, it's a really difficult question. Undoubtedly there are, I, I, would, I would say the, the key here is to at a minimum protect the budget, but really work very hard, which there's a lot of room to improve in how efficient the spending is and how, equitable it is. So how much do you actually spend on those who are most need? And how much do you ask, you know, families who can to to help out in their in, in the cost of their own children's education? So I think those are the kinds of questions that that we should be asking is how to how to make education more efficient and equitable, but not how to like, you know, postpone the investment in in today's children and youth. Thank you, Miriam. Justin. Um, so yeah, let me, uh, I'll do my usual stick here and then let me um, show one slide. Um, I, guess, I guess I'll give more of a positive answer than a normative answer um, in terms of what I think this implies for, for school spending. Um, with you know, some colleagues at CGD, we, we did a very, very simple exercise um, which was to say, um, we take these kind of growth projections for the COVID crisis that the IMF has put out, which um, I think are relatively optimistic for the developing world. Um, uh, they show a smaller decline in GDP growth 
for developing countries than for, for advanced economies. Um, but nevertheless, you know, a major um, recession on the horizon for most of the developing world. And, you know, the first uh, recession that Sub-Saharan Africa has seen in, in more than two decades. Um, and so then the question is, what does that imply for education budgets? To what extent are education budgets typically shielded um, from economic downturns? Um, and there we kind of just look back over time and look back in particular at the 2008-09 global financial crisis. Um, so if you look at those squiggly lines on the right, um, the, the blue line is GDP growth um, for four groups of countries, low income, lower middle, upper middle, high income countries. And then the red line is, is the growth in the education budget. Um, so in the high income countries, if you start down there on the bottom right, there's obviously this big shock to GDP growth in 08, 09. Um, but the good news is, is that developed economies are able um, to sort of smooth that uh, shock in the education sector. And so there were certainly states, and there's good research on that, on what the cuts to some state budgets um, and local school districts did in the US. But on average, across high income countries, um, they kind of smoothed that shock. Um, if you go, though, to the upper middle income even and the low income, lower middle income countries, what you see is those GDP shocks led to fairly significant declines in the growth, at least, of, of education budgets. And so there was pretty strong pass through of that lost GDP in terms of, of lower G, uh, education spending. Um, low income countries were sort of in uncharted territory, you know, for reasons that are outside the scope of this conversation, the global financial crisis never sort of reached the shores of Africa, really. Um, so we don't really have that historical experiment to look back at and the, the data on education spending uh, for people in many low income countries is pretty noisy. So it's hard to say, but um, I think there's definitely a real risk in much of the developing world that these kind of staggering reductions in, in forecast GDP growth are gonna translate into lower education spending. Um, and that takes us back to sort of your, you know, your so what, you know, what should we do question. Um, I mean, historically, increases in education spending have been linked to growth, but they also, the cross-sectional variation across countries is huge in terms of the prioritization given to education um, as a share of the budget. Um, and, you know, in normal times, I guess I feel not so reticent about advocating um, for increases in education spending, even though obviously it has to come from somewhere. Not all ed education spending is perfect, but there's lots of other areas of the budget that I feel quite comfortable um, championing education against. Um, I think that remains true post-COVID, right? Like we have a short-term crisis in which we're going to need PPE and ventilators and critical care. Um, but the real COVID crisis is going to be a much more extended affair over, over the next couple of years in which it's likely, hopefully, more an economic crisis in much of the developing world than that short-term health crisis. And so education, I don't think we can take our eye off of education in that regard. Um, and, I, and I'd reiterate, you know, something Emiliana said, like if we go back real historically at the, you know, the 1917 flu epidemic, um, you know, there's a great, and, and a much contested, but there's a great kind of empirical literature on the long-term effects of the 1917 pandemic and looking at the kids who were mostly in utero um, and early ages during that pandemic um, you know, papers written in the 1980s saying, you know, the 1917 flu pandemic still isn't over. You can see how that cohort suffered in terms of its educational outcomes, in terms of employment outcomes, crime and incarceration, you know, you name it, the shocks in early life that occurred as a result of that pandemic followed that generation through up into the late 20th century. So there's huge long-term risks from completely ignoring, you know, the impact on children, I think, in the short term. Thank you. Uh, I think you, you both convinced me that we should keep championing education expenditures. Um, I feel less guilty now about doing that. Um, I want to ask you, um, I guess, uh, I, I'm going to ask you two questions before we move into the open Q&A. The first one that I want to ask you is, do you expect 
this pandemic to have any beneficial effects at all for the future of education systems in developing countries. Because everything we've talked about so far is a very dire scenario. Yeah. I think there are two areas in which potentially it could um, have a silver lining. One, um, at least two areas, and maybe Justin can think of more. I think one is that um, as a society and particularly parents may come to value teachers and schools a lot more than they did previously when they've had to do some of that work themselves or when they've had to work alongside having their kids doing that work or not at home. And so I hope that um, that the value that society as a whole plays on the education system and in particular on teachers will be as high as historically is placed on doctors and other healthcare workers. And so that would be a great silver lining of this crisis. Mm -hmm. Another one would be that I think teachers in many, many places have had to uh, engage with technology in ways that they were kind of reticent to do in the past and have maybe lost some of their hesitation to using education technology as a complement to their work. And I am hopeful that that will improve, you know, that will, that will make, you know, will, and, and this is really a hope. I, I don't have any evidence of that, this, but I think if we are very thoughtful about how we rebuild systems when we can, and we integrate technology um, in a way that it complements the work of teachers and that place to edtech's comparative advantages. Um, for example, you know, delivering quality educational lectures at scale um, that, you know, enhancing the content that teachers know. No, no teacher knows everything he or she should know or that everything that students would want to learn. And so really turning the role of teachers into one more who, of a facilitator and a, someone who helps uh, students access knowledge and process and, and be critical thinkers, that would be a wonderful uh, result of this crisis. I, I really like both of those uh, hopeful wishes. Justin, anything that you want to add to that? I have a weird one. I, I like uh, Emiliano's answers, I think, better than mine. But uh, um, and hers are kind of bigger macro things. But I have a small specific one that I'm optimistic about. And not everyone's going to agree that it's a good thing. But um, we, in the midst of this crisis, you know, when the schools are closed, one thing that that is complicating in a lot of school systems is exams. Um, and you know, for the U.S. audience, it's a little bit strange because we don't have high stakes exams in quite the same way in our basic education system. You know, but system, a lot of systems are built around, you know, end of cycle, high stakes exams. Um, and countries are having to cancel those or postpone those. Um, I think, you know, kind of a pre-existing, you know, standpoint uh, we, can, we can debate here is that, that those have many negative effects on the incentives in the system. Uh, kind of focusing attention on the kids near the top of the distribution who can clear that exam hurdle and ignoring the kids who are farther from that cutoff, um, creating an arbitrary threshold where especially poorer kids from less advantaged backgrounds are locked out of secondary education. Um, and so seeing countries, we've been doing some work in Ghana with um, the national exams there, which may or may not go forward. Um, and personally, I'm gonna be quite happy if we see this, this round of exam cancellations um, that force systems to think about other ways of, um, of working out progression for students. Because um, as you mentioned, I think in an earlier question, what we see around the world, but especially in many developing countries, is these enormous performance gaps between rich and poor. Um, and so test scores are just so much higher, you know, for higher SES kids in, in schools with higher SES averages. Uh, and so when you have that hard threshold of the exams, you know, you're just ending the educational career um, of poorer students. If we're now closing schools and we have this stratifying event where poorer kids are falling farther behind, and then we come back to a high stakes exam and then end your educational career forever, we're going to kind of lock in that divergence. And so I will be, you know, as I said, quite relieved if, if we see sort of cancellation of some of these exams. And I'd love to see that as, as one sort of accidental uh, enduring feature of, of this current crisis. Thank you both. Um, 
we have a lot of questions, so I'm going to move over to to all these uh, these questions. Um, so I think some of the questions that we're getting are around uh, the the picture that Justin you showed at the beginning with what happens after schools reopen. Um, and, and you said there's some, that picture provides some cautious optimism around school reopenings not triggering this uh, sort of like coming back of the virus. Um, but I think we're getting a lot of questions around like, is that actually transferable or generalizable to developing countries in terms of the ability to provide a safe learning space? Um, because presumably in a lot of the countries like the Netherlands or some of the other countries you showed, a lot was done to reconvert classrooms and have um, smaller classrooms, which requires infrastructure that a lot of developing countries don't even have the space to, to separate kids. And not even talking about like the ability to test and trace. And so, so how generalizable are some of those um, findings toward developing countries and should should we even use those graphs to make any kind of predictions about whether it's safe or not um, to reopen schools in, in a developing context yeah um, those are i think really legitimate worries um, just to you know agree with the premise um, you know the, the first countries that we saw to reopen schools were you know quite affluent Western European countries, you know, Denmark, the Netherlands, France, um, and obviously those countries have the ability, the infrastructure to give kids space and do social distancing. Um, often these reopenings have only been for a few age groups at a time, particularly younger children or in some parts of the country um, with all kinds of kind of hygiene and social distancing measures in place. Um, that's no longer entirely true that we're only seeing reopenings in high-income European countries. You know, on that graph, we do have some data um, from developing countries as well. Um, and not all has been, you know, bad news. Um, you know, we're not in that analysis and in that graph doing, you know, some sort of more sophisticated um, event study difference and differences analysis to try to tease out what the causal effect of reopening is on the trajectory of COVID cases. Um, folks are trying, you know, they're, you know, one of the confounding factors is lots of other things tend to happen. Policymakers choose when to close schools at the same time they cancel um, other large events, um, issue other stay at home orders. So it's a little bit hard to isolate the effects of, of school closures per se. Um, I guess my own view uh, is that for the most part, those of us who are do work on education are actually a little bit out of our depth here and, and school reopening is less of an education question than it is of a public health uh, question. And, and even beyond public health, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of the uncertainty comes down to what the virologist can tell us about um, the transmission um, and how it happens between and whether it happens between um, children. So, um, to that extent, I think some of the questions are sort of universal in that, you know, if there is a scientific answer to whether or not children are less likely to transmit, and that's in the nature of the disease, that might be a universal feature, but it's certainly not one that I can, uh, <laughs> can speak to as an education economist. Thank you. Um, I think that a lot of the questions that we have are also related to the role of online education. So, so a lot of people are asking, for example, um, could you have in places that have uh, weak uh, quality of teaching, can you have computerized training of teachers to improve the quality of education that's being provided? Or could you have, if, if we're talking about uh, summer losses uh, in learning, but it doesn't need to be summer, it's current losses because of the school closures, could you use online programs? And so, Emiliana, maybe you want to speak a little bit to that based both on what we know about the effectiveness of online education and also issues related to accessibility to 
the infrastructure necessary to access online education? Sure. Um, you know, so the evidence on sort of the use of technologies and online education is very mixed, particularly in developing countries. Um, and there, we actually, I'm working on a, on a uh, report to help inform these decisions. Even pre-COVID, I was already working on it. But what we have done is um, to try and, and understand, instead of looking at, you know, just, the, you know, providing one-to-one -one laptops work, um, because the evidence is pretty, you know, clear that it, it doesn't work to accelerate learning. Um, does, you know, using uh, a certain type of software after school work? Um, and the research in some cases provides promising evidence, but then you don't, you can't really distill whether it's because the software was used for instruction or because there was more instruction because it was after school. So there was more hours devoted to the particular subject. So what we've done is with um, uh, colleagues is look at what would be the areas in which we think uh, based on the learning sciences, uh, technology would be best place to really help accelerate learning. And we found that they're really kind of four. One is, you know, kind of delivering quality instruction um, at scale. So if you have some really good uh, lectures, you can record them and distribute them massively, assuming there is access to, 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 to um, internet. And um, that's one case in which you can kind of enhance uh, or, you know, substitute for teachers who don't have the knowledge that, that we would hope they do. The second kind of area is providing more opportunities for students to practice concepts that they have learned um, because technology can offer many, many, you know, more practice uh, opportunities than a teacher can can provide uh, single handedly usually. Third one is making uh, some of the aspects of, of getting the content a little bit more engaging, you know, technology can facilitate it through games through more, um, you know, innovative ways to deliver kind of the content than uh, usual lectures can do. And the fourth one is uh, one that has kind of, the, in our view, in some ways, the most promising is this idea of allowing for per personalized and adaptive learning. Um, and so having students really te technology ad adapt to where the student is and the student kind of learn in its own pace. Um, so, you know, it will all depend uh, on kind of how it's employed. So we, you know, the experience has shown that unless systems are very strategic as to how they use technology, just providing a ton of content that's not high quality or that's of very quality and making it available doesn't lead to better learning. Um, that we've seen over and over. Many countries in the world have invested in, you know, preloaded uh, devices, distributed them massively. The hope, you know, way back when, when Negroponte started working on the one laptop was that this would be, you know, the great accelerator and the democratizer of quality education. And unfortunately, it didn't pan out that way. So being more strategic about how to use it. And then, of course, um, you know, we wonder whether, uh, and, and I hate to say this, given that Justin already talked about feeding when I was talking about something, <laughs> uh, you know, but, you know, should Internet access be kind of another right that people have? Because in this world, you feel so excluded. I mean, imagine if right now in, in the face of these um, of these lockdowns, we weren't able to communicate the way we are. I mean, it would be so much harder, right? So it's the same with people who don't have any access to information or news or uh, knowledge. So. That that's actually something that someone else uh, was raising in the question: uh, should it, should it actually be something that governments should all provide? Um, I, I have a question. Uh, I don't have a question. Karen uh, has a question that I think both of you can speak a lot to which uh, her question is how do you predict COVID will impact private providers of education? Um, Emiliana, you have done a lot of work in Chile um, and you know that there like over half of the schools are privately managed um, and Justin you've also done a lot of work on privately managed schools in Liberia and a lot of the conversation we're having assumes that there are going to be providers, whether it's the public sector or the private sector. But the reality is that because of this economic crisis that, that 
we expect uh, will happen um, and will be ongoing, a lot of those providers may disappear. Is that something we should expect? Or are those providers funded by international donors and should that be a priority for international donors? Um, like, what should happen? And then, in addition to that question about what's going to be the impact on private providers, are there also regulations that should apply to private providers? Uh, should, should the central government try to increase how much they regulate private providers given the current crisis or, or not? Oh, these are very uh, interesting questions. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll start by saying that, you know, it really depends on the financing schemes that countries have for private schooling, as well as the um, regulatory environment. So I'm just going to talk about Latin America, the region I know best, and uh, contrast two countries, uh, Chile and Peru, just for the sake of argument. So in Chile, the majority of um, those private schools that you're talking about, 50% or over 50% of students actually attend private schools, but they are financed by the government. So there's a nationwide, basically, school choice program, and families can choose and students can choose um, which schools they want to attend to, and the money kind of follows the suit. So I think in, this, in, in the Chilean case, um, both public and private schools are kind of at equal risk of, you know, being affected by the financial crisis. I, I don't see that um, that there is a, a private school advantage or a public school advantage. Um, I see the case of Peru differently. I've, I've been reading a lot in the news that, um, you know, already a, a number of schools that because there, the, there are uh, private schools that are um, not publicly financed and that are low cost or, or at each price point, let's say, and lots of Peruvian families also select private schools that they can afford to kind of avoid public schools that have not served them well. And those schools are struggling because they don't have the kind of back backup that the public schools do. So I think it will really depend on on the kind of ways in which private schools are financed, not on the fact that they're private or public in and of itself. Got it. Thank you. Uh, Justin? Um, yeah, I would, I would make a distinction. So thinking about low and lower middle income countries, um, between two kinds of private school models, I think we spend a lot of time talking about the international chains, um, that are highly reliant on kind of donor money and, um, philanthropic, you know, investments, um, impact investing and so on. Um, and some of my own work in Liberia and, you know, we're doing some work in Sierra Leone and all, all relates to that. Um, those are, at the end of the day, those still a, a small share of the pie globally in terms of basic education. Um, I think the one kind of shot across the bow I would make there is it has been unfortunate to see, you know, some of those private companies that are relying on aid money to do basic education and of not paying teachers during the crisis. Um, and so I think donors should, you know, if there's a regulatory agenda, you know, a really, really low hanging fruit, I think on the regulatory agenda would be if there's public monies going into uh, private schools, you know, during the crisis, um, that there ought to be some obligation to make sure you're still paying your, your teachers, um, which is, sort of a condition of most of the kind of business bailout schemes around, you know, the OECD countries that, you know, payroll protection is, is part of that. Um, the bigger question, you know, in terms of its significance for education around the world is going to be kind of smaller, quote unquote, mom and pop um, private schools, you know, half of urban India sends their kids to, to private schools and those are fee charging, mostly not chains, you know, small schools. Um, What's going to happen to those schools during this crisis, during lockdown? Um, are they going to come back uh, as things reopen? That's um, really more of a business economics question than it really is an, you know, an education question. It's not one that we should ignore. My, my guess, and yeah, I'm going out on a limb here, I don't, giving this 30 seconds thought, is a lot of those jobs, as 
as private school teachers are like other jobs in the informal sector. They're sort of, you know, employment of last resort. Um, and when, when the lockdown is over, people are, whether they've been paid or not, they're going to be there still needing those jobs. Um, those school operators are still going to be needing, um, you know, some sort of income. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much that business model will, will change. Um, but, uh, you know, time will tell. Is, is, is there, I mean, a lot of the conversation we, we've had so far assumes that people have an underlying demand for education that right now can't be met. Um, but there's also a question about, like, if the government decides that it's safe to reopen schools, it may be the case that children or parents don't want to send their kids back to school Teachers don't want to go back to work because they may think it's still not safe, uh, whatever the government says. So are there, are there policies that should be done? Is, is, is it a matter of how the, the decision is made to reopen schools? Should it be a consultative process? Like, how do we go about this uh, rather than assume that there is an underlying demand for it? I mean, I think a related issue, which is slightly different than the demand, I, I, um, I trust the market to sort that out. And if there's not demand for those private schools, you know, um, that's the risk those proprietors have taken. I get a little bit more worried about the market failures on the labor market side, where, um, you know, a lot of teachers unions in various countries have been very concerned about premature reopening of schools and concerned about their members' safety. Um, and, you know, unionized teachers in the public sector, um, you know, can stand up for their, you know, collective um, safety concerns. That's not the case in, in a non-unionized, you know, small school, private school setting. Um, and so I could definitely see the case for, you know, a policy intervention there to kind of essentially protect teachers from, you know, private school operators who may be overly eager and, uh, to restart, but uh, but that's you know that's hypothetical at this stage. It's a good question, and I'd be curious to hear more from people who who may be seeing this dynamic play out on the ground. Emiliana, I did some work um, that's coming out in a couple of weeks uh, with the uh, reopening the world series that Brookings is putting out, and I looked at the, the kind of the decision making process to reopen schools in Denmark and Finland. I did that kind of toward the end of April, beginning of March. So it's, you know, still, unfortunately you have to kind of meet the deadline. And, um, but it was very interesting, um, kind of that, that question of what the government, um, how they come to the policy to, you know, how, how they determine how to open. And, you know, as you mentioned, Agustina, you know, in both countries, they did a staggered reentry, um, younger kids coming back to school first in smaller groups but also how much leeway they gave to both local decision makers, teachers and parents um, to opt out of coming back to school or to delay the reopening. Um, so whereas, you know, in Denmark in particular, um, you know, if, if a school couldn't be ready by the date that the central government had mandated that they should open, um, that municipality, that school district could, um, you know, delay three or four days, not, not three months, but a few days. And that was accepted. Um, if a, you know, in the guidelines, there was a very thorough, and, and I totally agree with Justin, that all of a sudden these are more really health and virus questions than, than education, educators, you know, we can't really opine on this, but there was a big, um, health report or health guidelines that were provided to schools and, 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 and to families about, you know, what, how, what schools needed to do in order to, um, to be able to reopen as well as what families needed to do. So for example, families should not set some, a, a child to school if someone in the household has been uh, with a fever or ill. Um, if families uh, should not send someone to school if they have someone in the household who is at high risk. Teachers who are at high risk were not required to go back, but were required to go back to teaching. So they were going to be online teaching a little bit longer to those students who weren't able to go back to school. So there was a lot of thought put at, you know, at how to do it and a lot of um, 
uh, guidelines that were provided and kind of uh, socialized. Um, speaking of thoughtful uh, decision making, this has been a really thoughtful conversation. I wish we could prolong this for hours. Uh, it's just a topic that's going to require so much thought and work going into it. I'm really grateful not only that you could join us today, but also for all the work that you are doing at Brookings and at CGD. For, for those who joined us today, we had 100 participants join us today. I really encourage you to go visit their websites. There's just so much um, work that's coming out every day, getting updated. And, and this conversation is gonna be an ongoing conversation that is clearly a very important uh, dimension that, that we need to think about how to address. So uh, thank you both for joining me today and thank you everyone who's been at home. Stay safe, everyone, and take care. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.